Welcome to The Big Unlock, where we discuss data, analytics, and emerging technologies in healthcare. Here's some of the most innovative thinkers in healthcare information technology talk about the digital transformation of healthcare and how they are driving change in their organizations. Hello again, and welcome back to my podcast. This is Patty, and it is my great privilege and honor to have as my special guest today, Dwight Rom, CTO of uh, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dwight, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Patty. Uh, honored to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Okay, uh, for uh, for the benefit of our listeners, maybe you could tell us a little bit about Hopkins and your role at Hopkins. Sure. So Hopkins is a pretty well-known name in in healthcare. Um, long and storied history in clinical uh, research and care. Uh, we're also a university, and um, you know one of the first real teaching institutions in in medicine uh, in the world, and and in, indeed uh, the United States. So my role at Hopkins is um, CTO, and I oversee all the infrastructure and operations for both the university and the health system. I'm also the executive director of our Technology Innovation Center. Um, and most recently, I've been doing a lot of work focused uh, principally on precision medicine and how we use uh, big data and, and platform technologies to really change the way we're doing medical research these days. That's awesome. And we will definitely talk about uh, the precision medicine initiatives. So, so let's start with some high level stuff. How, how, do you, how would you describe the technology stack at Hopkins? Yeah, I think it's you know from a um, from a healthcare standpoint, it it looks probably fairly traditional. Uh, we uh, we have a large EHR vendor, and we uh, have deployed most of that through on-premise um, uh, services. We host two major data centers. Um, we're quite a large enterprise, and we're fully integrated onto one single EHR system. So as you can imagine, we have um, really good centralized controls over all of our endpoints and all the hosting that we do for our EHR system. Um, but from a innovation and from a precision medicine standpoint, I think we start to look pretty unique fairly rapidly. Uh, we're, we've been pretty uh, early adopters of cloud. We've been at it for now about six or seven years, but things really started to ramp up about three and a half years ago when we started building out this precision medicine platform, which is all now cloud native and it, it really uh, exploits the capability of, of, of cloud providers, you know, leveraging elasticity and um, really uh, large compute uh, as well as storage, data storage. That's been pretty pivotal in our in our transformation of, of research over the last couple of years. Right. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about how you're defining digital and digital transformation? And then you know how would you fold in your precision medicine initiatives in the context of the transformation? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, digital transformation is one of those buzzwords that we, we hear a lot of in our industry these days. And, you know, I think everybody has a different definition for what it actually is or, or what digital means to, to them. But from my perspective, it really means around, it, it's very simple, quite frankly. It's how do you employ technology, not as the driver of, uh, of change necessarily, but how do you use technology to drive your mission? Um, so the it's the marriage of new technical capabilities, uh, whether it's cloud or uh, more advanced things like ML or, or AI, um, 
how do you marry those to the traditional methods that you've had for meeting your mission area? Uh, and then really use that as a way to accelerate it. And it, it, it cuts across really two different domains. You know, I think about it in terms of what does it take to run my enterprise? That's not super sexy, but there is certainly room for digital transformation there where we become more efficient and more thoughtful about how we're going to use all of our resources. But then there's this sort of second phase, which is how do I reinvent what we're doing using all these, these technologies that are, are now available to us, but recognize that there is this highly symbiotic relationship between the two. Uh, as, you, if you, as, you do as you do innovation, as you do reinvention, you have to be thoughtful about how you take what you learn and you, you turn it back into that, that operational enterprise and really achieve scale with it. So I, I think uh, digital is, is really is transforming the way we, we do things, but it's, it's not as always as sexy as the, as the buzzwords are out there for it. Yeah, yeah. But I think you, you, made, a, you made a good distinction as it relates to you know, deploying technologies in the context of automation and efficiencies versus really transforming the way you deliver uh, care. Yeah. Well, um, and one of the things I've seen over the over the years is that you know there's this there's almost this uh, moth syndrome where everybody's drawn towards the the bright and shiny light of of a new technology that comes out, and I think they do so at the at the um, detriment of innovation within that operational space. You know there are great opportunities to exploit there, and, and if you don't look towards driving efficiency, um, it's awfully hard to. I think build sustainable innovations uh, when you're reinventing the way you do your business. The moth syndrome. I think I'm going to use that as a title for the podcast. <laughs> Great. I love it. Love it. Well, you know, obviously, uh, this begs the question of how you're going to pay for all this and how do you really build a business case, uh, you know, in both in tangible terms as well as in strategic value. Because we all know that healthcare is one of those sectors which carries a lot of technical debt, you know, long years of underinvestment. I'm not saying Hopkins in particular, but in general as a sector, there's a lot of technical debt that the sector carries. And we've done some research internally in my firm, which indicates that even though the focus is now towards all the emerging tech, digital transformation, and new technologies enabling the transformation, the fact of the matter is that a lot of the budget dollars available today are going towards maintaining the status quo, whether it's electronic health record, or any of the other legacy technologies. So, how do CIOs and CTOs balance the balance the two? What What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think there there is one sort of general principle which I'll, I'll share with you, and it kind of goes back to my previous comments regarding uh, focusing on the operational enterprise and looking for opportunities there. I think one of the techniques that we've been successful in deploying is uh, using those innovations in the operational space to gain efficiencies and using the, the resources freed up by efficiencies to focus on, on new innovations and driving new, new ways of doing the business. So uh, that's one strategy. It doesn't really solve though, I think for the, the larger problem of, of um, keeping the lights on versus um, you know, finding new ways to, to innovate. Um, so that, that second point I think is, is kind of unique to, to Johns Hopkins in that we are in a essentially a capitated state. The, the state of Maryland is, um, has very tight controls on how reimbursement works. And because of that, we've already made this transition to value-based care. So quite frankly, it's a strategic imperative for the entirety of our institution to focus on delivering care to the right individuals at the right place at the right time. And the only way that you can really 
quantify or, or even have a, a shot at doing that efficiently is to is to deliver it using technology. So the the very future of, of medicine, and I think value-based care is, is coming whether or not um, we like it, that is, that is our future. Uh, and the only way we're gonna effectively deliver on that future is if we figure out how to use technology um, as, the, as the scaling arm, as the lever arm for the efficiency that we need to get. Yeah, so would you say then that capitation is actually a, uh, the, the shift towards the capita capitation model is actually an accelerator and a driver for? Uh, Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it's, um, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And without these constraints, uh, we won't have the proper incentives to actually drive true change. You know, in a lot of ways, the technology pieces, while they're, they're interesting and sometimes really exciting, uh, the organizational changes that you are required to, to pull off real transformation are often a lot harder. So I think that alignment of incentives that uh, that transition to value-based care drives is really the key to, to catalytic transformation. Yeah, now I like the comment you made that, uh, you know, you use uh, innovation in order to gain efficiencies and you use the dollars that are freed up uh, to reinvest towards the future state. I, I love that. Now, you mentioned that you're also the executive director of the Hopkins Innovation Program. You tell us a little bit about the program and some of its accomplishments and how you actually measure the success, you know, how you how you actually measure the returns that, that you talked about. Yeah, so we actually, um, we launched the, the Technology Innovation Center at Johns Hopkins about uh, four and a half years ago. Uh, my co-founder, uh, Dr. Paul Naji and I uh, really saw this opportunity to say that we had incredible talent within our IAT organization as well as within our uh, Department of Radiology. And we merged our organizations and really bootstrapped it as almost like a startup type culture within Johns Hopkins. So the entity itself is, is somewhat standalone and we, are, we run as, as almost an internal consulting business back to uh, the, the mothership. But what we've done over the last four years or four and a half years is stand up a number of programs that foster that uh, organizational cultural shift that I was describing as so integral to digital transformation. Uh, my my, my co-founder, Paul, is, is really brilliant at, at pulling people together. And we've launched uh, a number of programs around uh, data analytics, precision medicine, around entrepreneurship, as well as uh, data science. So the, the these programs have really started to bring in a lot of faculty members as, as well as a lot of staff members. And uh, we have brought them into this cultural shift and they now become the, the apostles, if you will, of, of digital transformation change throughout all of Johns Hopkins. So there's been this wonderful shift that's occurred because the, the Technology Innovation Center has really acted as this convening center for, for change to occur. We measure success in a lot of ways. The, you know, one of the, the key measures is the number of people that we've influenced through these programs. But then also because we're a software development shop and we do, uh, we do these uh, entrepreneurship cohorts uh, every year, we also measure success in, the, the, in terms of number of, of products that we've developed and number of companies that we've helped uh, launch out of Hopkins and into Hopkins. So uh, over the last four years, we've, we've had some really great successes with, with technology innovations. Uh, we were really the first um, 
institution to deploy uh, a research kit app that used the Apple Watch. Um, we've, we've made really great innovations around clinical communications, um, just to list a few of them. So it's been a really great journey seeing the, the talent that we have here at our Innovation Center, but coupling that talent with world-class research teams and then seeing what comes out of that mix with, uh, with technology married to, to medical uh, intervention. Fascinating, fascinating. Well, let's let's switch to the topic of precision medicine, which I know is one of your uh, focus areas. Now, precision med medicine needs a lot of data, right? And yeah. uh, there's emerging sources of data. There's a lot of uh, you know ifs and buts about the data. Some of it is usable, some of it is not, uh, and, and there's a lot of questions around. So, so what are you know? What are some of the data sources you are using besides, obviously, the electronic health records? What are the emerging data sources you are using to drive precision medicine? And talk to us a little bit about what are some of the challenges you see in harnessing uh, these new emerging data sources to generate insights? Sure. So, uh, as you mentioned, we are using EHR as, as our, I like to think of the EHR as the backbone of the, of the precision medicine system because it essentially is the system that provides patient identity. It allows us to crosswalk to a lot of other really rich data sets. And our approach to precision medicine is um, really wide. It's multi-disease. And the, the, the way we've done that is we've launched these centers of excellence. Each center of excellence is focused around a specific uh, disease and disease area of study. But because there are so many different diseases that we, we are actually going after simultaneously, we've, we have found that there are some very common uh, high value data sources that when connected to the medical record provide really deep insight. So these are kind of the usual suspects in terms of, of data. Uh, you know, imaging data is obviously incredibly valuable. You marry that with genomics data, that's incredibly valuable. Uh, physiological monitoring data as well, so capturing real-time streaming data off of uh, in-room patient monitors, that, that data when connected all into context can provide a really complete or completer picture of, of that patient and their, their current disease state. One of the other things that we've done is uh, as we've we stood up each of these centers of excellence, almost every single center of excellence has had uh, a number of locally curated research databases. And in these locally curated research databases, they've, they've taken really elaborate notes and captured the phenotypes of, of these patients in a depth that our medical record doesn't, just doesn't have. So a big part of our process for standing up a, a center of excellence is to ingest all that data I mentioned around imaging and genomics and, and FISMON and uh, you know, the, the medical record. But then we also married up with this really rich uh, set of data from the phenotype that's been captured by, by the, the clinical researchers themselves. Some of the challenges are, as you can imagine, you know, big data, it, it is truly big data. We have pretty good cross-reference information on all this, all this data. One of the challenges though is really matching up semantic interoperability. Um, that's, that's one big challenge. The, the second big challenge is that the, those rich phenotypes that I described, they're often narratives. So how do you how do you derive uh, a feature from that narrative that can be the basis of uh, of classification or categorization? Uh, that's that's a really big challenge, and we find that to be a very iterative uh, challenge where we work with each center of excellence to refine 
whether it's uh, some sort of natural language processing that we use to extract a, a feature from notes, or maybe it's image processing to, to extract a, a feature from uh, an MR, MRI series. That data, once it's all presented into a, a curated um, uh, database that we provide to those research teams, the next challenge is, is having the right team members uh, available and, and able to work on that data. So a lot of times the data is sufficiently complex that you really do need a, a PhD level data scientist to, to help interrogate and model that data. And because of uh, our relationship uh, with the Applied Physics Laboratory, which is one of the, the institutions of Johns Hopkins University, we have access to some of the, the world's best data scientists. And we've brought them in to, to really support us in our precision medicine program overall. Um, so every one of these, these centers of excellence has one or two data scientists that have been uh, part of that team to actually work side by side with the clinical investigator to, to interrogate that data. But to also take that, the, the insights that are derived from data and match that back to the biological model of the disease itself. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you mentioned uh, uh, semantic interoperability. You know, so I, I want to kind of dig into that a little bit. Now, of course, interoperability has been a big topic for the last several years. You know, we put in all these EHR systems, but we didn't take care of the interoperability, so we're kind of playing catch up. Now, we made progress with technical interoperability, especially through the FHIR standard. Yeah. Uh, interoperability is still in very, very early stages. Even something as basic as exchanging information with your payer uh, is a huge challenge because of the semantic interoperability problem. This is the way they define and classify data in their uh, claims management systems. very different from the way you do it in your electronic health record system, just as a starting point. So uh, two questions. So should we say that the technical interoperability problem it's pretty much been resolved and it's just a matter of adoption because all the tools exist and it's a matter of will. So that's the first question. And secondly, you know, how long, you know, when are we going to get to semantic interoperability or, or some semblance of semantic interoperability that makes us feel like the data is truly fungible uh, between different settings? So I, I do think that um, technical interoperability is it's not 100% resolved yet, but we're well on our way. And I, I'm fairly confident that we will achieve full technical interoperability. I, I do think there are challenges around um, vendor implementations and openness. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how the, the rules uh, shake out in terms of information blocking, but that is that remains a concern of mine. Despite the fact that we have technical interoperability, there are still barriers uh, between data exchange, some of which are artificial, and I think we need to uh, really unleash or, or knock down as many of those barriers as we can so that we can at least achieve the, um, the, the interoperability of the data exchange level. From a semantic interoperability standpoint, boy, it's, that's a tough question to answer because you know there are so many different interpretations of what uh, any given data point may mean. And it, it's almost like boiling the ocean. So I don't know that there's any way that I ever see us getting to full semantic interoperability. However, that being said, um, if you think about interoperability around specific diseases, there are some really good models out there for what is the most appropriate way to collect the data. And I'll give you an example that we that we have had recently with precision medicine. One of our centers of excellence is uh, for multiple sclerosis. And we identified uh, in partnership with our, our clinical uh, faculty members who were doing the research, 
all the elements that were really um, important in terms of uh, capturing data around, around that patient on a, on a visit. And we developed a set of uh, intake forms that really standardized uh, rich data collection. Well, we are now sharing that with others, uh, other research institutions, so that when we collect data around MS patients, it's now interoperable. And we have the ability to, to not only share uh, data from a research standpoint, um, but also the ability to be consistent with how we practice care. So I think there is great hope around specific diseases and uh, the data that we collect and the structure and the meaning behind which we collect it that will, will help us achieve interoperability in a way that maybe we, we won't be able to achieve from a technical standpoint. Yeah, yeah. So, so from what you're saying, basically the solution is to approach it by addressing it at the source of the creation of the data as opposed to trying to fix it after the fact. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always going to be a, a bit of a combination of both because, you know, gosh knows we have a ton of data that uh, is sitting there and, and we can we can apply all kinds of uh, intelligence to extract meaning from that and, and normalize it. But that's, in my mind, that is a, a goal that will never be completely achieved. We'll just continuously do it and we'll yeah. get value from it. But to the extent you can move that data capture to be consistent upstream and maybe anchor it around a specific disease, you uh, you end with uh, end up with much better results. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's very insightful. So, switching to a different topic, uh, you know, there's this huge, uh, you know, what we might call a last mile problem in healthcare, right? So we do all this innovative work in the background. You know, we're coming up with all the insights and so on and so forth. How does it really make a difference at the point of care? And how do you deliver all the benefits of all these technology-led innovations and uh, insights uh, to patients and caregivers at the point of care? So can you talk a little bit about that and how you're, how you're addressing that at Hopkins? Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's, um, you're, you're right on in that it is a last-mile problem. There is so much research and so much insight that's already out there that's been published and presented. But it, it never makes its way to to actual delivery and implementation for patients. So the impact is is really constrained. Um, so I have, I have two thoughts on that. One is sort of a, an alignment of incentives perspective, and and it goes back to how Maryland is a special state and how I think could serve as a model for the rest of the country as we shift to to value based care. The incentives, um, because we're we're looking at treating the patient not on a fee for service basis, we're looking at their total overall health there's an incentive to want to practice the, these insights at a scale that goes across the entirety of the population. So let me give you an example. With, um, with our precision medicine program, we have a center of excellence that's for prostate cancer. And there is a model that's been developed by um, a number of uh, faculty here that is able to um, project out the risk of a man who has prostate cancer uh, who has indolent prostate cancer. So it's important to understand that about 40% of prostate um, cancer diagnoses are actually indolent. And that's when the prostate itself is, it does have cancer, but it's unlikely to, to kill you. And in those cases, um, about 40% of diagnoses are actually indolent. But for many men, they actually, um, they get treated even though the cancer is indolent. So our center of excellence um, actually created a model that helps not only the provider, but also the patient to understand the probabilities associated with not treating their cancer, their indolent cancer. 
Well, the, the upshot of this is that there's a huge savings to, uh, to not intervene prematurely. Uh, and there's a great benefit to the patient. The, the patient doesn't suffer all the consequences of, of more radical intervention. Yeah. Well, when you look at this across an entire population of, of men, for instance, in the state of Maryland, you know, the, the impact is, is tens of millions of dollars. So there's, there's a great incentive to, to create these precision medicine tools, but then also to make sure that they're, they're really delivered at the point of care. Now, the second point that I want to make about this, and this is a bit more of an engineering one, is, and I think is a unique aspect of what we're doing with our, our precision medicine in-health program, that is that uh, discovery and delivery are, are two very distinctly separate disciplines. Discovery is very much around free thinking and uh, understanding the in depth the disease, but the actual practice of delivery is one of of engineering. How do you how do you take the technology and make it accessible and adoptable by the frontline point of care clinicians? as well as the patients. So we all, I think, have really good models for how to do design thinking and how to, to build user-centered uh, applications. We need to ensure that when we make a discovery that we employ the engineering to come up with a product that actually can be scaled to actually achieve those outcomes that we want on a broader population basis. Right, and I, I, that's such a great analogy. I think uh, you know it's almost like saying this: it's the difference between pure research and applied research. And uh, I, I I love that uh, the contrast you draw between the discovery and the delivery of uh, of innovations or insights or whatever the case may be. That's fascinating. So one of the things I like to do on my podcast is what is known as a lightning round. So I'll read off three or four you know, terms that are commonly used today uh, in, in in the lexicon of healthcare and information technology. And uh, maybe you can share your top of mind thoughts on those, okay? Okay. We've, uh, we've already talked about cloud. So let me pick a couple others. Uh, artificial intelligence. Incredibly great promise. Um, must be balanced, though, with experience, and the human must remain in the equation. Okay. Blockchain. Interesting computer science concept, way overblown in the market. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, 5G networks. Um, a lot of hype, um, but great promise. Uh, voice enablement. The future. Um, I think that you know our traditional when we when we defined digital earlier in our conversation today, we we probably were thinking in terms of mobile and web. Um, but I think voice is kind of the most obvious next step of of user interface that is going to radically change the way we interact with technology. In, in many ways, I see technology starting to become less front and center and dissolving more into the background of our everyday experience. And voice almost, will probably persuade that, that that happens. It's almost like zero UI. Um, yeah, exactly, yep. Yep, yep. Okay, so uh, we're coming up to the end of our time here. A couple of quick uh, last uh, questions here. So what is your advice for tech firms, big and small, that want to be part of your journey at Hopkins? So I think the, um, we have to embrace 
Well, let me back up for a second here. You know, I, I think many of us know that healthcare in the United States, while we're in boom, boom times in many places across the country, it's it's just not sustainable. There are uh, is over a trillion dollars of waste every year in healthcare spending. A lot of that is government funded. I think we fundamentally have to ask ourselves as technology leaders, are we going to be part of the solution that um, changes the way healthcare is trending in the U.S. And can we can we actually improve this country as a consequence of the decisions and the innovations that we lead uh, as technologists? So I, I actually think it's uh, an incredible time to be uh, in the, the healthcare industry and, and, and in technology, um, because I think we have the opportunity to influence uh, the U.S. in a way that very few other industries can. And I think we can do so in a way that will, will radically improve um, the lives of future generations. So I think it's um, that's a very high-minded uh, high way of saying we have to be thinking about the the um, the challenge in front of us should be much bigger than our individual selves or institutions, and th the transition to value-based care and to uh, population health management and and technology-driven or data-driven decision making, these are all going to be the ways that we achieve those those great outcomes that that I see on the horizon. That is actually so well said. Actually, quite inspiring. Thank you for that. So my last question to you, how do you stay on top of all the technology trends? How do you, how do you, you know, keep yourself up to date and relevant? Yeah, it, I mean, I think that is always a challenge. Um, one of the great things about being the, being involved with our technology innovation center is that I have a lot of access to really savvy people who are, um, you know, at the leading edge of a lot of technologies. It also doesn't hurt that I'm at a you know great research institution, and there are brilliant minds, uh, much smarter than me, around me all the time. And just through osmosis and uh, and uh, proximity, I'm able to to gain access to a lot of really amazing ideas. Um, on a personal note, I, I'm a bit of a hacker on my own, and uh, I, I do have children, and we spend time together um, playing with new technologies and, and learning new things. So. I think it's it's hard to be in technology and and really have a passion for it if you can't um, if you can't have some sort of reward from actually from doing it all the time. So right. that's the way I stay on top of it. Um, and it, it's imperfect, but it does keep my uh, keep my fire lit. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, Dwight, uh, thank you so much for the time. It's been a fascinating conversation, and uh, you know, I look forward to catching up with you again in person sometime soon. Once again, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Subscribe to our podcast series at www.thebigunlock.com and write to us at info at thebigunlock.com.